Buffalo Rebel Capitalists, hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy, Andreas Steno Larson, and it's probably about three o'clock in the morning where he is. <laughs> <laughs> so I really appreciate his time coming on and going over this BIS report that everyone has been talking about. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think uh, Andreas would say that this is more BS than BIS. <laughs> so, so let's go through this, buddy. Can you kind of give me a short Reader's Digest version of what this report is all about and maybe why you think it's a, a nothing burger? And then maybe we'll go over it slightly so the audience can understand your view of some charts that I've got. Yeah, I mean, we obviously noticed that report from uh, Bank of International Settlements as well. My research company this week, it made the rounds on social media. It made the rounds in mainstream media even um, as a consequence of this um, very firm headline that uh, we have almost $100 trillion in hidden dollar debt, right? Um, I What, what I... Uh, think about this is basically that I don't consider it hidden in, in, in the sense that we actually know what it, what it is, uh, but it is hidden given that it's dollar debt off balance sheets, right? So in that sense, I agree, but we know what's underlying this headline. It is uh, essentially based on my local pension fund here in Europe or my local export company here in Europe wanting to have a hedge against dollar receivables. So what do I mean by that? Well, a pension fund in Germany, for example, they they hold a lot of US equities. They hold a lot of US bonds. Um, and to protect themselves against a move in the US dollar versus the euro, they essentially want an offsetting position right. in the dollar market against this dollar asset holding. Yeah. Uh, so what they want is basically to borrow US dollars in FX swaps against ec holding equities in US dollars. So, so they, they have a position to offset their long position. Exactly. Um, and the way they do that is via very sh uh, short term FX swaps. So usually they run a month or three months. And then they roll this FX swap on a running basis because they want the flexibility to be able to close down this offsetting position if they need to sell the dollar equity, or if the dollar equity drops in value, because that's also important, then they need the flexibility to uh, turn down their hedging ratio um, by the FX swaps without risking too much of the no-show. Yeah. So um, basically for people that are watching, they've got car insurance and uh, they want the ability to get rid of that car insurance if they sell the car. Uh, yep. So they're not paying for something that they don't need. Or if yep. the value of the car goes down, they want to be able to adjust the rate that they're insuring so they're not just wasting money. And I would assume that if they're trying to hedge out, let's say, a billion dollars worth of receivables, then they wouldn't need to borrow uh, a, a billion dollars. They would most likely only need to borrow a fraction of that to put on that short position, assuming they can do that with like options or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, but um, I mean, the typical hedging degrees, uh, hedging ratio is probably in between 60 and 80%. Okay. Uh, so if they buy, say, an Apple stock worth $100, then they would probably uh, borrow in between 60 and $80 in the in the FX swap market. So it is it is actually a biggie from a okay. notional perspective. Um, the, the issue here is that, I mean, when 
beep hits the fan, pardon my French. Um, everyone is on the same side of this trade in Europe, right? So I, th- I guess the risk here is that if we get a freeze in dollar funding markets, um, the pension funds are not able to roll over these FX swaps due to that freeze in the funding market. And that would be an issue for them. We saw how that played out in March 2020, for example, when we had uh, material stress in dollar funding markets as a consequence of the lockdown in the US. Right. Uh, and this was before the Fed stepped in with this um, truckload of liquidity. Uh, and at during those couple of weeks, it was very clear that uh, European pension funds simply had to sell dollar assets to meet obligations in these FX swaps. So this setup exaggerates trends in times of great stress in financial mm. markets. Now, is it safe to say that the counterparty involved in this, so you're using the example of a European pension fund who is borrowing dollars because they want to do that from a counterparty in the US because the US can most likely give it to them at a cheaper rate than them having to go into the US and borrow it themselves. So they're, so when they uh, do this swap, it, it's basically just like kind of a repo where instead of, it's just two currencies instead of like a T-bill in currencies where the, the, the let's just say a billion dollars would go from that European entity to the US entity. So that would be an asset on their balance sheet. So if the European entity defaults, then you could say, well, it's no big deal to the US entity because they still have that hundred, that billion dollars worth of euro on their balance sheet that now they can keep because that European entity went bust or vice mm. versa. Is that correct to, to, to assume that's the way it works? In, in, in principle, you have an exchange of notionals, but you can also enter an FX swap without an exchange of notionals. Um, in such case, it's, it's basically just um, a derivatives contract without a settlement of notionals. Uh, and then you just... And when you say notionals, you're talking about the money actually changing hands. Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, and in such case, it's basically just a contract settling um, at the maturity um, with uh, a price that is being set by the spread between mm-hmm. dollar and euro interest rates, right? Uh, so I actually think it's it's the most common not to exchange um, the cash flows. Um, oh, okay. And I mean, you could but argue you ex- that it you exchange the principle up front. Yeah, but not necessarily. Okay. Um, so, I mean, by the end of the day, the risk here is obviously if you don't exchange principles, you have a larger counterparty risk in principle here, right? Um, because of the exact situation that you depicted. If the one part in this trade goes bust, then you don't necessarily have a collateralized trade, um, even though it looks like a collateralized trade on the surface. Right. Yeah. So basically what you're saying there, if I'm, I'm understanding you, is uh, we got a repo transaction and the collateral being used is a, a T-bill. But that T-bill never really goes onto the balance sheet of, of the person that's taking the collateral. It's still yes. on the balance sheet of the entity that takes the cash. <laughs> yes. Yes. That, that's that's a great way, great way of describing it. So, yeah. <laughs> So if, if I understand this correctly, there, there's a couple different ways that, or maybe three different ways that we can do this. Number one, we got the two entities involved, the European entity and the U.S. entity. European entity needs dollars, U.S. entity needs euros. So they could go ahead and let's just assume they swap the principal to begin with. Uh, they could do that with cash on their balance sheet. 
So there's no other counterparties involved. Or if they didn't have the cash, then that U.S. entity could borrow from a U.S. bank. The European entity could borrow from a European bank. Then they would have two more counterparties, basically. Then they would go ahead and swap the money. And then at the end of the transaction, then each entity would go ahead and pay off the original loan. Uh, So they can use cash on their balance sheet or they can borrow to swap the cash or what it sounds like they cannot swap the cash at all and just agree to a contract to do so at a later date if one entity wants to exercise it or something like that. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, the typical way that uh, this transaction unfolds is that the European pension fund contacts a bank in London, for example, right, right. um, on one side of the trade, and then the bank in London redistributes that trade to a pension fund in the US, for example. Yeah. Right? So you have those two counterparties with a middleman in, um, in between in London. That's probably the typical um, line of events here. Okay, great. So let me just show you this diagram, Andres, and see if this fits with your view of, of how this works in reality here. So this is what you're saying. We've got firm A, we'll say that's the US uh, entity. Firm B is the European entity. And then we've got the swap bank that's kind of acting as a, a matchmaker. Yes. And this uh, firm uh, B in this case, I think in this example, firm A and B actually do borrow the money from a bank. Uh, so there'd be two more counterparties here. And they're borrowing uh, basically the equivalent of $52 million. This must have been when the euro, when the euro was a lot more, uh, <laughs> a lot higher. Yeah. Uh, so they, this uh, firm B would borrow the 40 million in euro. Uh, 52 million in dollars, then they would go ahead and I think in this example, they would actually trade, uh, they would swap for the the principal. Mm. And then the firm A would go ahead and pay the interest rate for firm B to the bank that they borrowed from, and then vice versa. So is this how you see it playing out in in one of the three scenarios in in actual reality? Or is this more theoretical? No, um, I mean, this is a practical example. If We assume that um, there is an actual exchange of cash flows from dollars to euros initially, right? Um, that's not always the case. Um, I would say that it's not typically the case, but um, okay. it could happen like uh, you described it there. Okay, yeah. So then the question becomes uh, you know, what percentage? Because I think and the, the way I see this is there is a bit more risk involved in the overall equation if you've got two more banks where that firm A and firm B have to borrow from, because if they can't make that payment, then it's not just a hole in their balance sheet, then it's a hole on the balance sheet of, of the, uh, of the bank itself. Mm. And then, and then if it, or if they're just using cash, then there's not that much risk because they're just trading dollars for euros. And uh, you know, if firm B goes bust, then firm A is just going to be stuck with the euros and the only risk they would have is just the depreciation of the euro relative to the dollar, uh, assuming that happened, and then assuming the majority of their expenses were denominated in dollars. Yeah, but let, let's assume that um, the European Pension Fund um, is already in possession of a stock in Apple. Okay. Then they could actually borrow those US dollars on a margin trade, so they don't need to exchange the principles, mm. um, and post either a bond or um, cash or an equity as collateral in the trade. Uh, And 
if the dollar appreciates, uh, they've sold the dollar in this trade, right? Yeah. Uh, if they borrow it, then there is a negative mark to market on this FX swap seen from the European perspective. Right. And in case of emergency, they will simply have to sell the collateral to meet that mark to market demand, mm. right? Uh, and that is what happens uh, in times of turbulence, that pension funds will have to meet their obligations in these FX swaps via actually selling what they post as collateral. Right. So if I'm understanding this correctly, I always go back to like Apple. I don't know why, but just assuming that Apple, you know, here in the United States, most of their expenses are denominated in dollars. They say to themselves, okay, we're most likely going to sell a billion dollars worth of iPhones in, in Europe next year. But uh, that's going to be great because we're going to have this Euro income. But unfortunately, there's FX risk there relative to our expenses. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and take a short position on a billion euros. And yes. you're saying that they're going to borrow, let's just say, 80% of that in this FX swap. Now, they could take uh, you know, $800 million off their own balance sheet if they've got the cash, which obviously Apple does. And they could just go ahead and give it to the counterparty. And then uh, the counterparty would give them the, uh, let's see, the euros to make the, the euro short position. And then vice versa. Or they can go ahead and borrow from a bank in the United States to go ahead and complete the transaction. And then you're saying that the risk there is that they, if the uh, collateral, I guess the collateral being used, that the collateral being used, that's where I'm kind of missing it. If, if Apple's doing that, um, then they're giving the cash, they're receiving the cash. Then you're saying the collateral being used as far as the value of the cash they're giving going down against the other currency or how would that collateral go down? Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. In the example that you described with Apple, I see yeah. a couple of risk scenarios. First okay. of all, um, you describe a receivable, uh, but it's an uncertain future cash flow for Apple, right? Right. So they don't necessarily have the need for that short position mm. at the same size as when they entered the trade, if the cash flow disappoints, right? Right. And it's the same thing if you're a pension fund and you hold an Apple stock in the US, if Apple sells off 50%, you don't need the same size of an FX swap to counter it. Mm. Um, and that's, of course, a potential mismatch in terms of nominals on your um, asset and liability side. So that's that's one risk. If 
Apple decides to enter this trade on a margin basis, that's also possible, right? So that they just enter this FX swap um, and they just pledge collateral if the FX swap turns into negative um, territory on mm -hmm. its market value. Yeah. Then at the time where the market value actually turns negative, they will have to pledge cash or pledge a bond as collateral um, to the bank in that trade. Uh, and if we assume that the asset market is selling off in such an instance, uh, you could enter this vicious spiral where you will have to post collateral. Um, and to a certain extent, you will also be asked to raise, raise almost cash-like um, instruments um, to pledge as collateral in times of turbulence. So Apple will have to sell whatever holdings they have to pledge cash. Uh, and that will sort of enter a, um, a vicious cycle in terms of, of how it all unfolds in, in financial markets. Right. And then you go back to, yeah, how many counterparties are involved there? Hmm. So the, the so I guess what makes this confusing is in this report, they just kind of paint with an extremely broad brush here. Hmm. Uh, they're just saying 100 trillion or 80 trillion in dollar denominated. But we don't know, you know, what percentage of that is just you know a, a cash exchange what extent of that is is being used as a hedge what extent is the dollar or the dollars or euros being used by real estate or machinery and we just we have no clue and mm -hmm. with each different use case there's a different set of risks involved yeah is that fair to say absolutely uh, and i mean i don't think there is an easy way to sort of map this entire landscape of derivatives right, since, right, it, since right. it's off balance sheet, right? Uh, you would essentially need to take a look at trading books uh, from right about every investment bank across the globe to get an overview <laughs> of this. That should be pretty easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, uh, being um, a, a former um, sell-side analyst, I, I obviously worked as a matchmaker in this market. Um, and it was tricky enough to just figure out our own trading book, to be honest. So, <laughs> I, 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 I am I'm not willing to to take on the task of of um, of mapping the entire investment bank right, uh, community right. in that sense. Um, All right. Well, may that win you a Nobel Prize. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, it's probably that difficult. Okay. So last question. I'm going to let you go here. What should, as far as the risks involved, what should we be thinking about, and what should we not be thinking about? Like, what's what's a good use of mental bandwidth when we're considering the potential risks? And what's not a good use of our time? Well, I actually think this story relates a whole lot to the dollar milkshake theory. Okay. Um, uh, it's um, you've probably talked about that theory on air before. Um, yeah, I'm real good friends with Brent. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is the reason why the market is overall short U.S. dollars outside of U.S. borders uh, in times of financial stress. Um, so back to the initial discussion. Every pension fund, every exporting company in Europe, Japan, Korea, you name it, they use these FX swaps to hedge FX risk on receivables, either dollar assets that they don't know when they will sell or yep. receivables of cash flows into the future uh, from exports to the US. And when we enter a uh, negative sentiment in financial markets due to a recession, for example. It's usually uh, the case that risk assets sell off, mm -hmm. and it's usually the case that cash flows disappoint. Uh, 
Right. Uh, and when that happens, um, these pension funds and these exporters, they are at risk of having to sell um, bonds and equities to meet collateral demands in these FX swaps. Yep. And like a margin uh, call. Uh, like a margin call. And since they are um, implicitly short US dollars in these trades mm -hmm. uh, and their long dollar position sells off due to a bad performance in equity markets or bad performance of the cash flows, uh, then they have to buy dollars essentially um, in these transactions to um, ensure that uh, the ends meet. Uh, and therefore, we tend to see this positive cycle in the US dollar as soon as we get financial stress. Uh, and we tend to see an exaggeration of the dollar trend in times of extreme turbulence. Yeah, that makes the debt burden even higher. It does. Yeah, so it's just this. It's, so, yeah. so at, I mean, when equities sell off in the US and when cash flows disappoint um, in exporting companies to the US, they naturally turn short dollars as they have more debt than uh, assets. So their asset viability uh, matchup is not good in times of turbulence. And especially if velocity goes down, which yeah. if you look at the yield curve, that's what that's what it's predicting. Yeah. All right, Andres. I know it's late there, but I appreciate the the, the quick tutorial there. I, I know everyone watching it really appreciate appreciates it as well. So, can you go ahead and let people know how they can find out more about what you do? Talk about the podcast. I mean, you're a host of a few podcasts. You're always on Real Vision. Uh, you're all over the place, and I highly suggest people uh, listen to not only the content you create, but then follow you on Twitter as well. Yeah, I host the Macro Trading Floor, so you can find that podcast on uh, all podcast apps. It's uh, out each and every Sunday. And otherwise, um, you can follow me at uh, Twitter uh, handle Andreas Steno. Um, sorry for that Scandinavian name, but uh, I guess you'll find me if you search. Um, oh, Josh just put it up here on the screen. Yeah. And finally, let me say, uh, George, even though I... I kind of like your cap. Um, by the end of the day, when uh, beep hits the fan in this dollar funding market, we need the Fed to inject liquidity because, because <laughs> otherwise, all the dominoes will fall. Right? <laughs> so, I know, and, yeah. and that, and I, that's why I'd encourage everyone to read that at least that section. It's a ninety-page report, but the section we're referencing, I think, starts on page seventy-six, and they said the BIS said this is why the Fed swap lines are so important. Yes. And this is why they th thought that we need more transparency so the Fed can take a more targeted approach instead of this shotgun approach right now where they're just trying to guess where all of the liquidity risks are in the system. But you could have, you know, let's just say 90% of the risk is in, I, I don't know, in Asia. And they set up a swap line with uh, the Swiss Central Bank and although there could be corresponding banking relationships to get that liquidity over to Asia where it's needed, it's, it's very inefficient. And I, th I think that was the main part or the main takeaway from the BIS report. And uh, so going back to the Fed, I think that's why everyone should read it. Now, I, I would push back on that, but that's going to take another 20 minutes, Andreas. <laughs> <Fair enough>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. Have a great evening and thanks for coming on. Thank you so much.